So you'll be in front of a, a you know, decent crowd, right? So All right. Uh, we'll talk your head up. You know, we'll build you up. Then we'll bring you down. Then we'll build you back <laughs> up. Right Story of my life. Yeah. <laughs> no problem there. Hey, everyone. We put out a teaser for the podcast this week on our Facebook page. Well, our guest today gives us a behind-the-scenes tour of the Bernheim Distillery. This is Heaven Hill's, I should say, distillery that is not open to the public. So we're very fortunate that Denny gave us a, gave us the opportunity to film some footage to share with everyone. There's going to be a new video published again on Sunday, so look out for that one. Most people are aware by now, there's a giveaway for Michter's Barrelhead on our Facebook page. So make sure you go to facebook.com slash bourbonpursuit and get yourself entered because that promotion will end on August 11th at 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you remember a few months ago, we partnered with the Kentucky Derby Museum to bring their Legend Series interviews with Fred Minnick to the podcast. On Thursday, September 7th, the Derby Museum is hosting a five-course dinner paired with different Four Roses recipes to commemorate Al Young's 50th anniversary. Al and Brent will also be there in attendance. Tickets are $100 a piece, and the bottles will also be available for sale. Seating is limited, so go to derbymuseum.org to reserve your spot. Remember, if you like the show, support us on Patreon. And thank you to all of you who are supporting at $10 a month and sporting your limited edition Bourbon Pursuit t-shirts. We also like you to write an iTunes review for us. It's the best possible way to spread the knowledge and boost this podcast success. This week's shout out goes to C. McKinney9530, who wrote, in the current world of bourbon misinformation, assumption, and rumors, they get to the bottom of hot topics by going straight to the source with awesome interviews from top industry professionals and personalities. It doesn't matter how knowledgeable you are already about bourbon, this podcast has something for everyone who enjoys the brown nectar of the gods. Thanks for that awesome review. With that, enjoy this week's episode. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. And they're off for another Get 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 0002703. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Welcome back to the episode of the Bourbon Pursuit Podcast, the official podcast of bourbon. You know, this is uh, this has been a fun week. Uh, been doing a lot of different things. And today we're, uh, again, at a distillery that I've actually never seen this part of the distillery before. And I've got a guest co-host on today. Uh, so I'm, I'm riding solo, but I was able to have Lyndon Ferguson back on the show again, one of a, an old guest co-host of ours. So Lyndon, welcome back, man. Hey, thanks, Sarah, for having me. When you say old... Uh, I'm almost 40, so uh, it's it's getting up there. But uh, yeah, I'm really excited to join you again. It's been uh, fun the last few times we've uh, done podcasts, and so I'm really excited to meet Denny and and uh, come here to Bernheim, which is 
a place that not many people get to uh, see. Absolutely. And you know, you say getting old, I'm just saying you're, you're just for men covers it up pretty well, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I don't see much gray. I think I've got more gray than you. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, as you said, I think it's pretty cool that we're, we're actually at a place that doesn't allow any public visitors yet as of today. And I, I you know, we get to also talk to one of the, uh, the, the people that have been here for, for quite some time, uh, knows the ins and outs of the industry has a, as a varied and historic background. So I think with that, we'll go ahead and introduce our guest. So today we have, uh, the man that's behind a lot of the famous brands that we all talk about on the show, like Evan Williams, Elijah Craig, Henry McKenna, Larceny. Um, he's much more, and there's much more than that. Uh, he's also the, uh, He's the current master distiller, also the former master distiller, and also now the VP of operations in Heaven Hill, Denny Potter. So, Denny, welcome to the show. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. So, I told you I was going to build your head up a little bit right there, right? <laughs> yeah, there it was. Yeah. <laughs> Are you going to break me down? Because I'm 44, so, yeah. <laughs> so I'm definitely the senior guy of the group. Well, I mean, even with your age, right? I mean, it's it's there's kind of like a, a new regime or a new realm of of younger master distillers that are starting to take over. You know, you've got you, you've got Harlan, Eddie Russell, um, uh, you know, uh, Davis from uh, Maker's Mark, right? So, I mean, there's a there's a lot of like new blood that's flowing into this. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think you're definitely seeing um, maybe new faces to the public, but not necessarily new faces to operations. Uh, and all the names you've mentioned there are people that have been in the industry for a while. Um, and it's, you know, it's not, you know, with, with companies like ours and facilities like ours and um, the other ones out there, it's it's not something you can just walk into and all of a sudden be the face of these brands without truly understanding the operations and the people behind it. And um, I just think it's, you know, it's just one of those things that you kind of put your time in, you enjoy what you do. Uh, you know, all of those guys are all operations guys, including myself. And that's where the passion has always been. Um, it just happens to be fun talking about what we do. You know, if somebody had told me, you know, back in college that, uh, you know, I'd be doing tastings for hundreds of people and giving talks and doing all these other things, I'd be like, you're absolutely crazy. You know, I just, I wanted to be in operations. That's just kind of um, how I wanted to do things. But I mean, it's what a great industry, great company, great brands. It's easy to kind of get out and talk about it. And you kind of have a passion to share it with others. And so new faces, uh, but not necessarily new to operations. Right. Cause I mean, it's, you've been doing it for years now, right? I mean, a lot of people that, that I even mentioned, they've been behind the scenes forever. And then, uh, you made your way through the ranks, right? I sure. Mean, maybe not through the ranks sometimes, but also, you know, you, you, you take different experiences from your past to be able to apply it to what you're doing today no, and everything like no that. No question. I mean, you know, I started out, it, it's, it, it'll be almost 20 years. I think the end of this year will be 20 years, uh, and have done a lot of different things. And, um, but been willing to do a lot of different things. Uh, you know, I just had a conversation with a college graduate yesterday who, you know, everybody's interested in, in you know, how we get to where we are and, and, and you know, how do they get involved in, in, in distilleries. And one of it is, is just be willing to do whatever it takes. Um, it's very difficult to get to where we are without having to come in and work second shift and work third shift and work weekends and work holidays. I mean, you know, these are all things that, I mean, distilleries run. I mean, you don't want to start a distillery up and shut it down. You want to start it up, run it, um, make quality product. And, and so, I mean, there are sacrifices that go into it. Just be willing to, to do those things and enjoy it along the way and appreciate the fact that you're part of the industry. And um, I've just been very, very lucky. I've worked for some, you know, absolutely fantastic companies some fantastic families. Uh, and it's just, it's amazing to look back and say, oh my God, it's been 20 years. It, it doesn't feel like it. It's also funny when people say that they're like, you know, they, they have this aura that like, oh, it's a distillery. And then people like you are like, you know, yeah, but we're, it's like, we're just like a manufacturing plant, right? Like people have this, this idea that it's greater or grander than what it is. But I mean, it's, it's very much a, it's a, it's a, it's a living, breathing operating machine at the end of the day, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we manufacture, I mean, you know, some people might call us a chemical processor or, or something like that. I think the difference is the fact that this industry has been around for so long. Um, you know, they've been making, uh, distilling, you know, alcohol for hundreds of years. And, you know, the big difference today is that, you know, we, we understand the science behind it. Uh, we're able to control it better. We're able to produce more of a consistent product. But yeah, I mean, it, it really is no different than any other manufacturing facility. It's just that we happen to be a part of an industry that has been around for so long and that people relate to. Um, I mean, you know, and, and a lot of that is because of the legacy, because of the stories, because of the families behind the brands. 
um, you know, there is an aura about it. It's people are just genuinely interested in, in what we do. We're, we're lucky. I mean, it's, I think it's great that people are interested in that rather than like, oh, how are pennies made? Right, 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 right. It doesn't really hurt that the, uh, you know, the bourbon boom for the last, you know, eight, 12 years or so has really uh, shined a, a bright light on uh, the magic behind what is in a warehouse. So, yeah, no doubt. Uh, I was just telling somebody um, at Bourbon Affair last week, you know, it used to be uh, I was assistant master distiller at Makers for a little while. And, you know, when I would go out and do a tasting or a talk or, you know, some type of um, whiskey education, we literally would spend or I would spend the first 20 minutes telling people about the rules of bourbon. That's what I mean. And to see the look on people's faces where for the first time they heard, what do you mean it doesn't have to be made in Kentucky? I mean, it was just if I were to do that today, but we, I always, would, we always prefer it to be made. We, we prefer it. Absolutely, we prefer <laughs> it because we can make it better here than anywhere else. 95% of the um, world's bourbon is made here. It, the it rest, is. The yeah. rest isn't fit to drink anyways, right? It is. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but, but if I were to start out, you know, let, let's take Bourbon Affair, for example. Bourbon Affair. So if I had started out one of our events talking about the rules of bourbon, somebody probably would have slapped me in the face and I would have deserved it. Or walked out. Or wa- Yeah, I mean, so it is. I mean, there has been this absolute evolution over the last— um, eight, 10 years where, you know, people, it used to be people would come to you to get educated. No, they're educating themselves outside of talking to you, then coming to you with some really good questions. Sure, sure. Which I love. Uh, you know, when you're talking about the rules of bourbon and doing that, you're really, you're talking to people. Whereas now, I mean, it, it's almost like a Q&A. And that's what I love. And, you know, like with Heaven Hill, I mean, we're very transparent about what we do. I mean, we, you know, we've got our mash bills on our website, you know, all those things. So, um, it's easy to do Q&A because there's, you know, I mean, there's no real smoke and mirrors with with what we do. And I just love it. I mean, I, you know, anytime I'm showing somebody around or doing anything, I literally, I'm like, all right, this goes best if you ask questions. And then you can kind of tailor, you know, that discussion, which usually will elicit additional questions. So, but yeah, it's, I mean, the last 10 years with the way people become educated in, in whiskey has just been phenomenal. Well, that's great. And then you kind of uh, let us into our next, next little phase here, I guess, because you, you talk about you're the assistant MD over at Maker's Mark, but I want to talk a little bit before that. Like, what's your history? How'd you carve your path? Where'd you start cutting your teeth? All that sort of stuff to where you ended up today. Well, you know, I guess so. It, it all started back um, in college. I went to Indiana University and you know, I, I, wanted, I went for a biology degree. Uh, my plan was to be a marine biologist. So what better place to try to become a marine biologist than go into a state school <laughs> in Indiana? I was about to say, um, uh, in, a, in a landlocked <laughs> state. Well, know. but, you know, <laughs> state school, che- you know, cheaper tuition, all that. So the original plan was, um, you know, get my bachelor's in biology and then get my master's in marine biology. And I just so happened, you know, my wife and I went to high school together. So she was at IU. We graduated, got married pretty much right after college and yeah, I mean, it just I was not going for my master's in marine biology. And um, I got a job right out of college working for a hazardous waste facility as, in the lab. Um, and so the lab work kind of is, is absolutely what got me in. And um, I started out working as a lab tech at Jim Beam. So that was my first job 20 years ago. I want to roll back to this hazardous yeah. thing. Were you kind of like a Homer Simpson-esque character, kind of yeah. like sitting up um, there like with radioactive stuff? Or like- no, man, I tell you, it's uh, it definitely, that job definitely uh, gave me an appreciation for other lab jobs because um, the company I worked for was Safety Clean. And our basically our job was, there were, bas- there were two jobs in the lab. You know, everybody sends their hazardous waste to Safety Clean. I mean, it's just a company that a lot of people know about. So one of the jobs was when the drums came in or the tankers came in, that we had to chemically identify and make sure that what they told us they were sending us was actually what they sent us. Uh, I could tell you that 50% of the time it was not. Um, <laughs> and you weren't uh, doing this via taste that's, testing that's at this right, time either. Right. And, then, and then the other part of the lab was, you know, working up samples, um, you know, because we blended off as fuel. So, you know, we would do different things with that. So with that job, I mean, it was crazy. You would come into work and you had a, a clean locker room and a dirty locker room. So you had to wear uniforms. So, you know, your uniforms were, you're covered head to toe in clothing, uh, no contacts um, in the plant, hard hats, but we also carried respirators with us everywhere. We had belt respirators that stayed with us everywhere we went. That way, if there was a chemical release or something happened with the sample, you could pop that on. Um, And the craziest thing about it was at the end of the night, you had to go through the dirty side of the locker room. So 
you know, you got to take your uniform off, drop it, and then you were required to take a shower before you left. So you actually had somebody that would sit there and make sure that everybody that was coming from the dirty side to the clean side took a shower because they didn't want to contaminate. You know, they obviously didn't want to contaminate anything on the clean side, and they certainly didn't want you taking anything home with them. Um, so, you know, it was one of those things that you just kind of realized, um, man, man, maybe this isn't the job that I want to do for <laughs> the rest a, of this my life. You didn't come home like glowing in the dark, did you? I didn't, but <laughs> it is one of those things. You know, like when you're working up a sample and all of a sudden the GC's showing that, you know, it's it's loaded with styrene or PCBs or something like that. You're kind of like, oh, my goodness, I've been working with this for two hours. But you learn also that every sample you're working up, you you pretty much treat like it's the worst thing possible. Um, so that you know, that was my exposure to labs initially. So you can imagine when I had an opportunity to go to Beam and, you know, I walk in that first day and it's khakis. And you're Ooh, like, oh, where's this? I can wear my contacts. <sighs> and literally they said, well, you know, one of your main responsibilities as a lab tech here at Beam is to set up the taste panel. It, yeah, I mean, it was just, you talk about night and day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, it, very surreal, but also one of those, okay, now I can see myself, you know, sticking with this industry and, uh, and working my way through it. So it, you know, that's kind of how I got in. You know, it was really the lab side of the business that got me in the door. I had experience running a GC and a GC mass spec. Um, so no, no showers were necessary at this point, right? So no, you kind of got out of that. that no, no showers unless mandated by my wife. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, just just completely different. And But then that was also um, the first job that, you know, we were, you know, working in the lab was going out in the plant, um, whether it was, you know, doing line checks for bottling samples to make sure proof and quality were upheld, whether it was package or liquid, to on the distillery side, you know, working up fermenter samples, uh, making sure everything's going right in fermentation so we can control the quality of distillation. It's You learn so much about the operation. And, you know, I was only in the lab for, it was less than a year, and then basically took an operations role on the environmental side. And so that kind of pulled me out of the lab and got me more involved in the operations at Jim Beam. And so we had a, um, at the time, we had a drinking water plant. We, we produced all of our own drinking water. Uh, coming from a lake. And then we also had a wastewater plant. So I was a drinking water operator. I was a wastewater operator. So, you know, we're, we're cleaning the water as it comes in and also cleaning the water as it goes out. Um, and then, you know, did a lot of the environmental stuff on that side and, and did that. I think I was at beam for five years, um, and then left and went to makers Mark and at makers, um, came in, uh, doing environmental and quality. And I think I'd been at Makers maybe seven or eight months, and Steve Nally announced his retirement. Um, and then Dave Pickerel was our plant manager, and Kevin Smith was our assistant plant manager. Uh, people in the industry know both of those guys. And so we had, a, I mean, we had a hell of a team going there at Makers. And I, knowing Steve was leaving, I went in and talked to those two guys and said, listen, you know, I've always wanted to fully get involved on the distillery side, and would you give me a chance to run the distillery? And they agreed to. Um, I had to keep some of my other responsibilities, but I was like, that's fine. I'll figure that out. I want to, you know, just dive in. So uh, when Steve retired, I took over uh, the distillery at Maker's Mark. And, um, you know, that that evolved into a little more of a marketing role as assistant master distiller. And uh, up until the point that, you know, I, I left or they asked me to to leave and go to Cruise and Rum. So um, it's just been very interesting uh, kind of, you know, all the different things I've done and how I've ended up here. And I don't know if you want me to go into the cruise and rum stuff. or I kind of do, you know, you know, with this whole, uh, you know, you have a history in rum and the fact that there is an uptick in rum right now, the, the interest in rum. So I kind of just give people a, a little bit of a flavor about, you know, what the, what the side of that's like as well. Yeah. I mean, so uh, we had bought uh, cruise and rum, you know, it, I guess this was probably in 2009. Um, and so, you know, cruise and was basically... And not at the time they weren't family owned, but they'd always been family operated. The Nelthrip family they had started Cruising Rum, you know, I think 80, 90 years ago, uh, and it changed various hands. Well, as we were having to onboard Cruising as an operation, they were having to spend millions of dollars to upgrade their plant, and do different things. So they actually asked if, and, and I think the family, the Nelthrip family, actually asked, "Hey, you know, we can't, we're not used to this. We need help." So they asked me to go down there. Um, as general manager and run the facility, uh, but at the same time, you know, uh, 
kind of be a bit of a project manager and help manage, you know, these millions of dollars that we were going to spend to upgrade the facility. Where, where was this rum plant? Yeah, so it was in St. Croix in the okay. Virgin Islands. So it was That's, the U.S. Virgin Islands. Yeah, Island. twist my arm to go there, right? Yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah, I was I was there for three years. It, pheno- you know, phenomenal place. It's, um, you know, it's one of those, I loved it. it. It's, you know, any island like that, you either love it or you hate it. Uh, I absolutely loved it. My wife absolutely hated it because she didn't um, get Amazon two day prime delivery, it's, it's, right? <laughs> you're right. I mean, it's it's all those things. You know, no access. You know, no distributed water. Um, you know, your power goes out three or four times a day. It, it, there are just so many different things uh, that, and I don't want to say we take it for granted here, but that are really magnified when you go to a place like that. Uh, you know, the cost of electricity. I mean, you know, we pay you know seven eight cents a kilowatt hour here. Uh, when we were down there, we were paying 45 cents a kilowatt hour. So it's the island's beautiful, but there's a lot of things about it that are almost third world. Sure. And, you know, they just, um, it's not an easy place to live, but boy, it is beautiful living there. Uh, and, you know, and I was very lucky to uh, work with the Nelthrips while I was there, learn a lot about, um, you know, the art of making rum and, and truly, uh, got an appreciation for rum. You know, I mean, I, you know, I grew up in this area, you know, I was born in Louisville. Uh, it's always been whiskey, right? I mean, it's always been bourbon and, you know, I drank a little bit of rum here and there, but usually it was when I was on vacation as a pina colada or God forbid, a strawberry daiquiri without the (laughs) umbrella, no umbrellas. Um, but going down there and then all of a sudden, you know, your rum is the cheapest thing you can buy on Island, you know, so you could buy the water. Yeah. You could buy a bottle of rum, you know, for $4, and but your twelve pack of Coke might be ten, you know. So, um, but then also an appreciation for aged rum, and you know all these things that that I learned through you know the Nelthrips and what they had done for generations. And so yeah, I mean even today, you know, it's I, uh, obviously I drink a lot of whiskey, but you know I certainly take time out to drink a little bit of rum too, uh, just because there's I mean there's so much legacy involved uh, if you're doing whiskey and in rum comparisons. I mean just the families behind it and all the different things that that we've all had to do to survive. I mean, it's just, it's very, very fascinating. And if, if you've never been to a rum distillery in the Caribbean, it is definitely worth checking out. Um, very, very interesting operation. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, there is something that's the, uh, the bourbon cruise, I think that's happening this summer. And, uh, I know that it's being ran by Norwegian cruise lines and it's going to be, you know, I know Fred Minnick's on it. There's a bunch of other people that are doing this Norwegian cruise line. Uh, but it's also going to stop at, I think, a few rum places along the way too, yeah. right? So you get a, a good mix of all yeah, that. Yeah, I've heard. And I know, you know, Fred's, Fred's a big rum guy, and he and I have chatted quite a bit about rum because um, I love it. I mean, you don't get too much of an opportunity in this area to talk rum. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I hope, I hope rum sees an uptick. You know, I hope uh, they see growth like we've seen in whiskey. I mean, I think there's a lot of good people behind those brands. And, yeah, absolutely, I'm pulling for all of them. And obviously, Heaven Hill, I mean, we've got— We've got, you know, Admiral Nelson and Blackheart and, you know, so we've got some uh, phenomenal rums as well. So, yeah, always so, always keeping an eye on that industry. Real cool. So the other thing I want to talk about, you know, I kind of before we dive into a lot of the Heaven Hill stuff, I want to talk about your environmental background because this is something that I've always been interested to know. You know, you drive by, you'll be in Barstown, you'll be driving by and you see these smokestacks that are piling out. And I, I kind of want to know, like, what is the environmental impact of like making whiskey today? Well, you know, it's certainly changed, you know, um, whether it's how we're regulated on the back end, just because, I mean, you know, we, when you're making alcohol, I mean, it's, you know, you've got to deal with the stillage that comes off the bottom of the still. Right. It's a water grain mix, but it's an organic, it's an organic product. And, um, you know, ours, you basically try to give away what you can as animal feed. And um, if you can't do that, then you have to go to other means. Uh, of basically dewatering, and you can either dewater mechanically, uh, or you can dewater through evaporation. You know, there's, but but the end product is still an animal feed, and um, you know, I think it's it. The technology has changed quite a bit. So you know, when you see stacks, more than likely, one, it could just be, you know, we we have boilers and we run boilers, so it might be related to boilers, but it, you know, it could also be related to uh, running a dry house as well. But I also think you know. Um, We've all tried to put practices in um, to help, you know, not just protect the environment, but invest in the environment, whether it's through, uh, you know, minimal water use programs to, you know, how, how we work with the farmers uh, to avoid, you know, 
water contamination, basically, through herbicides and pesticides and things like that. So there, there are a lot of things. And then, you know, you look at um, the barrel side of it and the white oak. And I know a lot of people think that a ton of oak is used in our industry. It's really not. I mean, it's we small are very, very small. To, you know, construction. And- yeah, it's, it's the housing. It's international. It's, um, you know, if you talk to uh, you know, we buy barrels from McGinnis and Independent Stave. And, and you know, just in talking with Don McGinnis not that long ago, Don's like, we have more access to oak now than we've had in probably 30, 40 years because they've all done reharvesting projects to make sure that, you know, they have a supply of white oak that they can pull from. And then also there's ways to manage forests. You know, it's um, you have to thin forest out a little bit in Absolutely. order to allow them to grow and mature and to allow trees to grow right behind it. So uh, there are practices that they've put in where they are much better situated now than they probably were 30 or 40 years ago. And so, you know, a lot of it is, you know, we obviously want to do uh, the right thing for the environment. But at the same time, I mean, there's a lot of, of good business sense and efficiencies that come with that. I've seen a lot of impact, um, you know, on hunting farms where they pull white oaks and, you know, when those white oaks are, you know, 100 years old, 100 plus feet tall, they cover the, the canopy below or the, uh, the ground below. And, and so you don't have a lot of growth. But when you, when you cut a few white oaks, there is an abundance of new growth. And that actually impacts, uh, you know, other animals besides the deer and the turkey. Sure. Uh, and they replenish. And it's just a, it's, actually, it's actually helpful similar to way a, a fire would be helpful in a forest where you just see uh, a, a renaissance of growth that those, you know, old, old forests uh, haven't seen in years. So you're absolutely right. And, you know, we can talk about, you know, the bourbon industry and the families involved with that. If you start looking at the barrel side of the business uh, and the families that are involved there, you talk about interesting and it's all those things that you've just talked about. I mean, they'll work locally uh, with whatever state they're in with, um, with the forestry divisions and, and things like that, because it, well, it's right and it's smart. And, you know, and it's, it's a fascinating side of the business because, you know, a, a, a typical oak tree that gets harvested to make a barrel is probably 70, 80, 90 years old. So just like you said, when, when they come down and they get used, well, then that allows, you know, more light access in the forest and, and for saplings to grow right behind it. And uh, they know that. And so they invest in it and it's just, it's just good for everybody. But in the grand scheme of things, um, you know, it's, uh, the barrels are just a blip on the radar for, you know, where white oak is actually used. Okay, cool. So I want to go ahead and fast forward a little bit to, uh, you know, when you came to Heaven Hill and kind of how you, you carved your path to where you were uh, today with inside these walls. Yeah. So uh, I came over to Heaven Hill. It would have been... Actually, it's almost exactly four years. It was in June of 2013. Um, came from Beam, so I spent you know 16 years within Beam. That included, you know, I kind of went into um, Jim Beam Claremont, uh, the seven years at Maker's Mark, the three years at Cruising Rum, um, and then I, I uh, spent another year at the Jim Beam Frankfurt plant. So came over, uh, title uh, distillery plant manager. Main focus was the Bernheim operation. Um, you know, we're, we're located in West Louisville. We, we kind of have, it's almost, it's our own separate plant. Uh, we have our own uh, local union. So we kind of operate pretty independent of what goes on in Bardstown. And, you know, so we have, uh, we have distilling and we have warehousing here. So that, that's what I did, you know, up until very, very recently, uh, that's what I did. And then it was probably, I think, two and a half years ago where, um, you know, obviously with Parker's illness, um, you know, Craig was very busy, main, you know, whether it was because of Parker's illness or other things where we really they needed help on the marketing side, because we all know it's all it's all about, you know, being out there, talking to people, um, you know, educating, doing tastings, things like that. And, you know, they just said, hey, you know, would you be interested in and in being one of our master distillers? And, you know, it's one of those you're like. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. So another twist my arm. Kind yeah, of yeah. I mean, just uh, very surreal, obviously. Uh, but at the same time, you know, just one of those things where it's very uh, humbling to be asked to do something like that. And, and so my day-to-day job was identical, didn't change at all, just took on some additional responsibility on the marketing side. And um, so that was kind of it uh, up until, you know, May, um, where I was promoted to vice president of operations and master distiller. So 
uh, you know, I've expanded it's always, responsibility. It's great. Yeah, more responsibility, yeah. same amount of pay. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, once again, I mean, uh, just, uh, um, you know, just humbled again to be asked to do it. And so now I have responsibility, not just of the Bernheim plant, but also the Bardstown and then the Deep Eddy operation in Austin, Texas. Yeah, I was about to say, I was like, you know, with Parker passing, it's, it's a lot of big shoes to fill, right? But it seems like you're already kind of on your, your rocket ship upwards. Well, I mean, I think, you know, it's no secret, and I don't think I ever made it a secret, is that, um, you know, I'm, I want to stay involved with operations. I mean, that's, that's what I want to do. And, and, you know, having the master distiller title is fantastic, and I love it, and I don't want that to change. But at the same time, if you have an opportunity to kind of grow your responsibilities on the operations side, that's what I want to do. I mean, that, that's what I enjoy doing. Um, so, it, you know, it's just, it's fantastic that I can continue on the education side, but at the same time, you know, expand my operational role and learn. You know, I don't, I don't want to be in a position where I'm not learning anymore and I'm not, you know, able to do uh, a few different things. So to have this is just, I mean, it's just, it's great. And, um, you know, just very, very early into it, uh, we've got great people that are, you know, already doing all these things. Now it's up to me to figure out what they need to continue to do their job and, and honestly not to get in their way. I mean, it's, uh, this company's been around for 81 years. They're very good at what they do. And I just need to figure out, you know, how, how can I help that? How can I keep that going? Um, and it, it's, I mean, so far so good. I mean, we'll see, but I definitely have a lot to learn. So let's, let's move into a little bit about the operations. Uh, you know, Heaven Hill has a very wide portfolio of the products you sell and everything like that. Now, I know whiskey is is distilled here. Any other kind of spirits that are done here as well? Well, we only distill whiskey here at the Bernheim operation, but we also have our brandy operation here. So we do the Christian Brothers brand here. Uh, we don't distill it. It's distilled out in California. Um, we bring it in, but then we age it in our used whiskey barrels, uh, typically our bourbon barrels. Uh, so it's aged here, then we'll dump it here, and then truck it out to Bardstown for bottling. Uh, so just distill whiskey, but we also do brandy as well, at least the brandy maturation side. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> uh, a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And you can get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com bourbon. So how many barrels of whiskey are you are you producing here per day then? Um, today, on average, about 1,000 barrels per day. Um, and so we run, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, we're undergoing an expansion. Uh, the expansion we've been working on for two years now will be complete mid-July. So when we come off of our summer shutdown, which is three weeks long this year, um, we'll be firing up 
expansion and and it'll take a little bit of time, but we should be up to about 1,300 barrels a day once that's online. I mean, that's a lot of barrel. I mean, uh, around here, you know, you can you can come around the, this downtown part of Louisville and you can drive by. I mean, it's right next to Brown Form and you can see actually your rick houses that are here on site, right? They're they're big brick monstrosities. Right. So how how full are these warehouses versus, uh, you know, how much are you trucking out to Bardstown to go and age and how full are those? Because I know you guys are even expanding to even bigger 55,000 barrel rickhouses out there too. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, as far as the maturation side, um, here at the Bernheim plant, you know, we've had the same warehouses, uh, we have, they were all built right after prohibition. Um, so absolutely zero expansion on the maturation side here. We we just can't do it. I mean, we don't have the the room to do it. Real estate's Um, not cheaper, you know, around downtown either. Right. But so, but we have 47 additional warehouses in Nelson County. So we have six total warehouse sites, uh, one here in Jefferson County uh, attached to the Bernheim operation, and then five additional in Nelson County. So we have um, over 1.2 million barrels in inventory. Right now, we're probably a little shy of 1.3 million spaces. Um, so we're, uh, you know, I could tell you, it's it's one thing to expand the distillery. It's another thing to be thinking ahead of that, which is, do we have places to put these barrels? Um, and, you know, we bought in a, a sixth warehouse site two years ago, bought another uh, about 200 acres with the idea of putting an additional 10 warehouses on those sites. Like you said, about 57,000 barrels is what they'll hold. Before the first one opened up, we were, we were probably at 97% capacity. Um, so very tight. We're, we're basically, as we're pulling barrels out for dumping, we are putting barrels right, right behind them. But with that, you know, we have we've accelerated our, our plan for maturation. So um, we built two warehouses last year. Uh, we just opened a third one on that site about three or four weeks ago. A fourth one will be open this fall, and then more than likely we'll build two next year. And we'll, we'll probably build out until we have the full ten on that site. So that you know, that's one side of it. It's just making sure that we're doing that investment up front and. And it's just crazy. I mean, you know, those warehouses are, you know, uh, probably five million dollars, five and a half million dollars. I mean, they're they're not cheap, but it's not like you get, you don't build these and get a return on it immediately. No. I mean, I, you know, I tell people all the time. I mean, anybody that were to walk into a bank with a business plan to start a, a new distillery, it's just it's insane. I mean, it's all right. We need X million dollars to for capital to build the plant. Uh, Oh, and oh, by the way, you know, we need X million to operate the plant because we got to buy new barrels. We got to buy grain. We got to do all this. Oh, and we're going to put these barrels away. Oh, and we're not going to get them out for five, six, 12, 23 years. Oh, and guess what? While that's happening, we're losing inventory. And you're paying a lot of taxes. And we're paying taxes. So the angel share, the taxes, I mean, it's just, it's just nuts. But because we've been around for so long and we're so well established and we've got, you know, such brands that have, you know, weight in the industry we can do these things up front and manage the business um, and do things the right way. So, you know, building these warehouses and then, you know, doing our distillery expansion is $20 million. So, you know, we can do all these things with the idea of, well, you know, we need to get to where we're hopefully meeting demand, but at the same time, you know, not just going gangbusters on everything kind of, I don't want to say it's slow growth, but it's controlled, it's controlled spend. um, But it's just, I mean, it's just phenomenal, the investment that we're putting in and that everybody else is putting in right now. I would say you can almost coin like a new operational term for what you're doing, running at 97% capacity, just like JITD, right? Just just in time yeah, distilling, that's right? That's right, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, with the opening of the new, we're not we're not at that capacity anymore, but it, it, I can tell you it, it doesn't take long to get there. If we don't stay on this growth plan for warehousing, then, yeah, I mean, it's— and now all of a sudden you're, you know, you're— Warehouse space is controlling your distillery operation and, and that schedule. And uh, we've been running seven days a week, 24 hours a day for two and a half years. And it's still not enough. I mean, um, we That's joke. a good problem to have versus the other way around. It's, an, it's an excellent problem to have. Yeah. I mean, it really is. Um, but but it's, it can be problematic. I mean, you know, just because of the spend involved. And, you know, I feel like we've had contractors. I mean, there are contractors that have been at this distillery as long as I have, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for the four years that I've been here. And, um uh, but it's good. I mean, it's it's absolutely good problems to have, no doubt. So coming from the operations side, like what's more expensive to run, like the distillery operation or like say the aging operation where you have to put in the capital to be able to build all these warehouses and sit there and wait versus something that you can just say, 
uh, distill, right? I mean, there's equipment that goes into there as well and people. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I guess, um, I mean, if you're looking at capital, it's the distillery. Um, if you're looking at, at operating expense and some of the others, then, I mean, you know, the cost of that barrel is significant. And, you know, so to, to spin that up front and to let it sit there. And, you know, obviously, you know, on the distillery side, you've got the grain costs and everything else, but nothing equates to the cost of that barrel. Um, so it's a little of both. So on the capital side, it's the distillery. But I think if you're looking at, you know, just stuff that's going on the balance sheet, it's hard to, it's hard to discount, you know, the cost of, and like I said, the barrels plus the taxes and the fact that you're losing inventory to, to angel share. Right. So, uh, you know, the, you, t- you mentioned already having six different warehouse sites and, and you being a part of this, you know, have you, have you able to taste like a lot of like maybe differences in the, the taste or the flavors, or the way that a barrel matures depending on the site? Because, uh, I mean, it could just be, uh, you know, the type of wood or where it was in the warehouse and all this other kind of stuff. But is the location playing a big part? Because these are not like, um, you know, a mile from the road each other. We're talking, you know, sometimes 20, 30, 40 minute drives. Uh, no question. Um, but you get variation even in the same warehouse on the same warehouse site. Uh, you know, we just did a really cool event last week for Bourbon Affair where we took people. We started out at the Bardstown site um, and then we went to Shinley and sampled a barrel that had been aging there. Then we went to Cox's Creek, had lunch there. Then we went to Deetsville and sampled a barrel there. And, you know, just in that, I mean, you know, because each of these sites are at different elevations, right? And then, then you know, the warehouses that are on those sites, how many floors those warehouses are and uh, what floor the barrel goes in at and, you know, how long the barrel stays there. I mean, that's, you know, th- there's a reason why, you know, we're able to have the portfolio that we have because of maturation. And, you know, we've got the, with the 54 warehouses and all the different floors and the different ages, and there is no doubt um, – you know, but to say that one site is better than the other, it's hard. It's hard to say that. And we pull some damn good whiskey from Deetsville. There's no doubt about it. But I can tell you, you know, this Cox's Creek site that we've had barrels in now for maybe a year, it's going to be a phenomenal site. You know, you see it when you're driving Bardstown Road, coming from Louisville to Bardstown, you're going to know when you're about eight miles outside of Bardstown, you look to the right, you're going to see um, the three new warehouses that we have opened up and then the other one that's under construction. And I mean, just the elevation and the airflow that exists up at the top of that hill. I mean, I'm just excited about what we're going to be able to get out of that. But, you know, it's hard to sit here and say that one site is absolutely better than another just because of the variation you can get just within one single warehouse. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, people love it when we talk a little about the brands themselves. So what are the, you know, you already talked about some of the difference in the the mash bills that, you know, that everything's available on the website for you, but mash bill aside, like what are some of those other uh, major differences, whether you're pulling them from different warehouses and different locations uh, that go into things like, you know, whether it's a, a Henry McKenna bottled and bond, a little bit kind of a smaller batch versus something that's like Evan Williams, much larger batch or Larceny or something like that. Right. I mean, you know, it, 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 it depends on the brand. I mean, obviously, that's pretty simple. Um, you know, if you're, uh, it, it all starts with the mash bill. You know, we, we run five traditional American whiskey mash bills. Uh, primarily, we run a bourbon rye mash bill, which is going to be the base for the Evan Williams, the Elijah Craig, the Henry McKenna. Um, we run a bourbon wheat, which is the base for Old Fitz and Larceny. We run a wheat whiskey, which is Bernheim. We run a rye whiskey, which is Rittenhouse and Pikesville. We run a corn whiskey, which is Mellow Corn and Georgia Moon. So we can run these five mash bills, but, you know, based on, you know, how long, you know, what warehouse, how long they've been in and everything else, you know, you can get a vastly different product. So let's look at Henry McKenna. Well, you know, the Henry McKenna is a a, a 10-year bottled and bond. So we know, all right, well, we got the mash bill because it's a bourbon rye mash bill. Or we need something that's 10 years. Um, we need something that's going to be 100 proof. So those are the things when you're looking in inventory, you're kind of like, and it's got to be a single barrel. So you're limited in what, what you can pull for something like that. Now, if you're looking at an Evan Williams Black, same mash bill, right? Now, typically our Evan Williams is going to be, you know, over five years old, which for the number two bourbon in the world, the number two bourbon in the world, um, to have an age statement like that, not an age statement, but that's basically what we're pulling. And then on top of it, at 86 proof is phenomenal. I mean, it's just, um, it's just unreal. But, you know, but we're going to do a bigger dump when it comes to that. So maybe it's 2,000 barrels, you know. So you got a drastically, drastically different product because you got a single barrel with the Henry McKenna. Well, then now you got the Evan Williams. 
um, and all the, the the differences I've already talked about. But with the Evan Williams, we're really one consistency too. So let's you know we got to pull two thousand barrels that are similar in age. Um, or if anything, at least balance themselves out to hold true to the quality of and consistency of an Evan Williams black. Um, you know, if you're looking at Elijah Craig, you know, we're looking at Elijah Craig small batch in an eight to 12 year range. Um, you know, we know the taste profile we're kind of going for. I can tell you, you know, it's uh, weighted average right now. We're It's right at 11 years. So it's t- got a lot of age in, in those dumps. Um, so it really just depends on the brand. But, you know, you can do a lot of different things with a similar mash bill. But it just depends on the brand and then, you know, um, how we run it on the line. You know, how much liquid do we need in order to— There's a lot, know, of, lot of variables to go uh, into. Yeah, there's a to, ton, to, absolutely. To a product. Yeah, I was, I was thinking, like, it might, for my opinion, it, it might just be an impossible puzzle to solve because you've got all these different locations that, you know— not all of them are spun up, but a lot of them are maybe two or three or four of them are available. And you got to be able to pick and choose like where these barrels are going to come from and whether, you know, whether it take, you know, 20 from side A and 20 from side B and marry them together and they still fit the same flavor, flavor it, profile that you're supposed to expect. You know, it, it, it obviously it depends on the size of the dump too. So it's one of those, if you're doing a 2000, you know, we have the institutional knowledge to know that we can pull 30 barrels from this floor at this site and 30 barrels from this floor at this site. And, you know, we just know that, and if we dump that together, that we're, it's going to be a fairly consistent product. Now, if you're looking like an Elijah Craig where you're doing a 200 barrel dump uh, or anything that's smaller than that, then yeah, I mean, you, you know, it's not unusual for us to send people out into the warehouses to grab samples from different areas to make sure. You want to be absolutely sure. Yeah. And if we need to mingle that in the lab, before we do the dump, then that that's what we'll do. So there's you know there's a, a part of that, that that happens as well, depending on what product it is. So uh, I kind of want to move a little bit and even to the, some of the higher age statements, right? So you know once was almost impossible for Heaven Hill to even get rid of. Uh, now Heaven Hill has been known for some of their higher aged ones amongst the whiskey geeks. You know Martin Mills twenty four year unicorns to Elijah Craig eighteen and twenty three, uh, William Heaven Hill fourteen and fifteen years. You know, do you anticipate the future of whiskey drinkers, maybe even like ten or twelve, fifteen years from now, to still be wanting some of those higher aged limited edition products? I, you know, I, I definitely think that, that people will always want it. Um, it. It's unique, right? I mean, it's just, um, it's a story uh, to think that, you know, I mean, just the thought today, you know, we're making distillate today. Uh, we're running a bourbon rye. So there's a good chance that one of the barrels that we fill, one of those thousand barrels that we fill per day, is probably going to be an Elijah Craig 23-year-old. How cool is that? That means I'll be 67 years old when that product <laughs> when that, hits when that's the market. So, yeah. so I think, you know, there's part of that um, that I don't think ever goes away where people are just going to be really, really interested in, you know, these products that are 18 and 23. Now, you know, I'll tell you, I don't have to have an 18 or 23 to put a smile on my face. One of the products we've already talked about, the Henry McKenna 10-year bottle and bond that you can buy locally for 30 bucks a bottle. Yeah, we're not well, supposed to talk about that too much. Well, exactly. We're, get, we're getting the word out I, there. I, that, is like, that is probably the best delicious value in whiskey, period. I, I get it all the time. You know, people will ask me if I'm doing a seminar somewhere, um, you know, what's your go-to? And it, and it depends on what I answer. But when I, when I tell, you know, talk about Henry McKenna, a lot of people don't know too much about it. If they didn't know about it, I'll eventually hear back from them and they'll say, oh, that was unbelievable. But almost every time after the seminar is over, somebody will walk up and say exactly what you guys just said, which is don't freaking talk about it. Yeah, we yeah. shouldn't talk about it because before we know that, it, it's getting up the way Elijah Craig. And now we're going to mm-hmm. have Henry McKenna bottled and bond without an age right. statement. So we got we to slow down on some of that talking. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, you know, so, you know, I'm very happy. You know, I, I love Elijah Craig small, but I, I absolutely um, – I'm infatuated with the Elijah Craig Barrel Proof. I mean, I, you know, just I don't know if there's a, in our, in, at least in our portfolio, a better nose on a bourbon than what you can get out of that Elijah Craig Barrel Proof. Um, and, and, and I love our 18 and I love our 23. And that's really good, too. But, you know, that's a pretty it's kind of a niche market. You know, even now it is. I mean, uh, it's not cheap to get. Um, I, I think it's fairly affordable for what we sell it for, for an 18 or a 23. But, you know, something, but as an everyday drinker, no. I mean, that's a very special occasion. So you're always going to have special occasions. You're always going to have people that are going to want to, 
you know, go after that 18 or 23 year old. Um, I actually, I like the 125 hand grenade, the 125 oh, proof yeah. hand grenade. I think that's phenomenal. Yeah, it was a big hit last week at Bourbon Affair, people. I mean, because it's not, you know, it's obviously it's not something we advertise, but, you know, it's something neat that people can take home. And Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think the higher age statements, you know, people are, people are, they're, I mean, at least to today's market, it seems like people really want them. I don't know if it's just the infatuation with it or whatever it is, but, you know, I guess, you know, how is, how are you able to forecast something like that too? I mean, are you just saying like, you know what, I'll make it, you all forecast and figure out how often you, how, you know, how much you're going to keep these barrels for for the next we, five years to, yeah. get us over, to get us over this hump until we can, you know. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a couple different things, right? And, you know, one is the, uh, just a bit of a discussion on forecasting. And then the other is uh, specifically the Elijah Craig 18 and 23. And I, you know, I can go into a little bit of that. I always tell people, um, and it, it, I've probably said it so much that people are like, oh my God, he's saying it again. If you were to sit in, you know, one of our demand planned meetings. It's an exercise in insanity. Okay. When you're trying to determine what your production schedule is going to be today, you know, your mash bill, your volume and all that based on where, where we think consumers might be. Well, let's, let's just take Evan Williams black, you know, a five and a half year old or something like that, or an Elijah Craig that's going to be close to 12 or the 18 or the 23. It is insane. I mean, you can't help but laugh sometimes when you're talking about this stuff. And I joke when I say it, but um, it's it's pretty much the truth. If you get it right, you screwed up somewhere. Mm -hmm. Or, I mean, you just... There's no way. There is absolutely no way to predict the, it's basically it. Basically, like we should probably have flying cars by then too. Well, right? yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's just man, it's nuts. There was a previous podcast you had maybe Harlan Wheatley on, or somebody from Buffalo Trace, and they said they're forecasting 37 years out. Yeah, I mean it. Yeah, I mean that's real. I believe it. It's I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say that we go that far out, but I can tell you. I mean, we're out there. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, because you have to do that. And it's, you know, just well, let's talk, I mean, Elijah Craig, right? I mean, it's, uh, um, I've talked about how transparent we are. And I feel like we've been very transparent about Elijah Craig and and going from the 12-year age statement to the small batch. Well, I mean, there you go, right? I mean, so we have a brand like Elijah Craig that has a 12-year age statement that had been around for 30 years. Wasn't new, wasn't something we put out seven or eight years ago with an age statement, had been out for 30 years. Hadn't put a lot of marketing dollars behind it, didn't really need to. Um, but was a brand that that was known as a quality, affordable bourbon. So imagine when we're sitting in and we're trying to look at the next year's sales and what the demand is and everything else. And we immediately realize, holy crap, Elijah Craig 12, if we are to maintain, we're going to lose 30% in volume. Now, you got to remember at this time too, Elijah Craig 18 and 23 were not on the market. Mm -hmm. We were dry. And everywhere I went, you know, um, the first question I, I would always get is, when are we getting larceny? And then the second question I would get is, when's the 18-year-old coming back? You know, 12 years before, we nobody could have predicted, you know, where this growth was going to come from and this, you know, the, um, uh, the cocktail culture that exists that has really driven uh, a lot of our, uh, a lot of the whiskey consumption. So we're already looking, we're looking at a brand that had been around for 30 years that we're going to have to retract by 30% if we stick to 12 years. And oh, by the way, we don't have, 18 and 23. And on top of it, the Elijah Craig barrel proof goes away. It was already hard to get anyway. That goes away. So now, so we're retracting 30%. Well, guess what? That price is going to be double. Because the brand, I mean, you're running the risk of killing the brand. So when you're looking at it from our point of view and you're like, how can we, how can we salvage this? You know, how can we work with this? And you start looking at, well, if we just go, if we take the 12 year off and we go to a range of eight to 12 years. Well, we knew right away that we were going to be able to keep something close to 12 years, but at the same time, be able to take those barrels that we were going to have to use up with the 12 year age statement and then set them aside for the Elijah Craig barrel proof to bring the 18 back, to know that we're going to have barrels for 23. So now we have protected the entire Elijah Craig family. And that's what we've really done here is We've got the small batch. We've got we've got a twelve year. It's at barrel proof, and we've got an eighteen. And you know, the last two years we've released a twenty three as well. Uh, and then on top of it, we can potentially grow this Elijah Craig brand and maintain price. So there you go. You know, you, you have a, a twelve year old at the time that's thirty dollars a bottle. Now we're you know we're close to eleven. The prices remain the same. Um, 
I'm telling you, 10 out of 10 times we make the same decision because everything that we were wanting to do with that brand and the extensions off of it, we've done. And I mean, last week at Bourbon Affair, I couldn't tell you how many people came up and said, so glad to see that you guys are putting barrels behind the barrel proof and that it's accessible. Maybe not the easiest thing in the world to get, but you know, we're releasing it you know, three times a year at a minimum, which we weren't doing before, and you're gonna still see the 18 and the 23. So, uh, but th- that all starts with what we were thinking, I guess it would have been 14 years ago um, when we were looking at Elijah Craig 12. And, but at the same time, a lot of good things have come out of that. And, um, and, and, and honestly, by going to a small batch uh, with a 200 barrel dump, it's allowed us to be a lot more consistent with the liquid inside the small batch. Because before, if you got a 12-year age statement like that, you're taking that 12-year wherever you can get it. Wherever that 12-year-old barrel is, you're grabbing it and it's going in. Whereas now, we can mingle and we can take, you know, 10 barrels from the top of the floor and 10 barrels from the bottom of the floor. Because I'm here to tell you, you know, uh, 10 eight-year-old barrels from the top are pretty daggone similar to 10 12-year-old barrels at the bottom. So now it gives us the luxury of, holding consistency and quality. And, you know, that's just one example. Um, But it's, and I mean, people get raked over the coals for taking an age statement off, whereas, okay, so we went from 12 year to small batch, but guess what? We maintain an age statement and we brought two back with the 18 and the 23. So, um, you know, we've got, you know, our family, the Shapira family that's been running this business for 81 years, they kind of know what they're doing and that's why we've been around, and that's why we're still privately held and growing. And, and I mean, it's just, um, you know, you're going to take a few punches, but at the end of the day, it was the right decision to make. I think, you know, for anybody that just wasn't able to just see what happened right there, I mean, there was so much passion that just came out of you sure, right there, just, sure. just with either age statements or sacrificing or whatever it is, right, just to, you know, keep keep the integrity of— uh, Well, it's, you know, well, it's something for me. I mean, I you know, I— the, I rather talk about it than get asked the question because typically when you get asked the question, it's I'll be honest, it's coming from a negative aspect. It's usually you know somebody that wants to just chastise us for you know taking the age statement off. I like to get out in front of that and say, I mean, we yes, if we had enough barrels, we probably wouldn't be talking about an Elijah Craig small batch. But guess what? We would have still had eighteen. We would still had the barrel proof, but we didn't. Right? We didn't because nobody knew what was going to happen. So, I mean. I'm just telling you, I mean, 10 out of 10 times we make the same decision and, and to know that and to make the decision and be comfortable with it. And then, I mean, it's great. I mean, to see the small, or I'm sorry, the barrel proof out there and the 18 and the 23, I'm happy as hell because that, they weren't there two, three years ago. So it's exciting to still have those brands out there. And it's all because of one decision. So there's one other brand I want to kind of talk about because at least, you know, we, we talk a lot about the, you know, Heaven Hill has more bottled and bond products than uh, any other company within the portfolio. But there's a little gem that you can only get here in Kentucky, and that's the six-year white label, right? So yeah. I guess when you travel, like, do people ask a lot about that one as well? Because we know we we tell people all the time, like, if you're swinging through Kentucky, you better just go ahead and grab grab a six-pack of it because it's about the best, Man, damn, best bang for your buck right there. You know, we can talk about Henry McKenna. I mean, you know, there's like categories of, of gems, right? And um, there is no doubt that the Heaven Hill six-year bottle and bond is one of those. And, um, you know, you, took, I, you know, we we feel that Bernie Lovers, who is our American whiskey ambassador and works uh, with Heaven Hill, single-handedly has brought the bottled and bond, bond portfolio back. And I think a lot of people outside of Heaven Hill will at least give Bernie a lot of credit for that. No doubt. If I'm going to Chicago or New York or, uh, I mean, mixologists that we've, you know, developed relationships with will be they're not asking us to bring them a bottle of Elijah Craig 18 or even the Henry McKenna. They're asking for, please, for the love of God, bring me a case of Heaven Hill <laughs> bottled in bond. And it's because, I mean, we joke, but it's the truth. Um, if you pay $12 for a fifth, you pay too much for a six-year, 100 proof. So they can take that bottle, and if you're in New York, and let's say an $11.20 bottle, I think that's what it was the last time I was in the liquor store which may or may not have been yesterday. <laughs> um, so take an $11 bottle of bourbon and make a $15 quality cocktail with it. They absolutely love it. I mean, mixologists are just, they don't go for... These are margins right there. Yeah, <laughs> no, it is. I mean, they're running businesses too. And, and, yeah. and God knows that the bar and restaurant industry is the toughest one to be in. So whenever you have, you know, these products like this, the, that's what they ask for. That's what they want. 
Um, so yeah, and, and and because we're family owned and operated, and because we don't answer to a shareholder, they love the fact that we've got a six year bottled and bond out there for under twelve dollars. I mean, I think you know one of the things that they've always held true to is 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 quality and value, uh, and maybe even to a fault. You know, honestly, I mean, you know, you look at. Um, you know, how, how people might stack us up. And if they're just looking at price, we're never going to win because we've got some unbelievable prices on some of these, you know, mature products that are on the market with that Heaven Hill six-year-old just being ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I mean, for, uh, I've got three bottles of it at my bar at home. Um, it's, I mean, everybody and people are starting, it's funny because even last week, uh, like if, if I'm doing an event or anything and I'm signing bottles, Every now and then somebody will bring one of those Heaven Hill white labels and it, you just kind of make eye contact mm -hmm. and just kind of chuck a little bit and be like, all right, this guy knows what he's doing. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I'm glad you brought that up because it's one not, not a lot of people talk about, but man, a lot. If you're in this area, get all over it. I yeah. love it. So there's uh, there's kind of like one last way I kind of want to close this out. You know, you know Charlie Downs is kind of like a I guess a peer to yours, right? He kind of has he does his thing over the uh, Evan Williams Bourbon Experience, but he's also. Uh, almost like a hamster in a cage sometimes, right? Like people will be there and they'll pull up the, the red curtain and like, oh, and there's, and there's, <laughs> there's Charlie, Charlie right, right there. Yeah, wave, you know, give him a wave, yeah. Charlie, you know? Like, I guess, you know, you you kind of have a, a little bit different aspect to it, right? Because you're over here doing a, a much larger operation, but, you know, you're really not a hamster in a cage and getting all that uh, publicity or public-facing uh, uh, interaction on a day-to-day -day basis. Like, is that, and that's okay with you, right? Oh, my goodness. Are you kidding me? Yeah, it's absolutely okay with me. But you got to remember, too, I mean, you know, um, Charlie ran this facility for a long time. I mean, he was here at Bernheim. He was part of the crew that came in when we bought this place in 99. He worked the distillery in Bardstown. So, He's done all this a lot longer than I've done it. And I think, you know, it was a situation with Charlie because when I when I came on board, um, you know, the family had asked Charlie, like, listen, we need you at the Evan Williams Bourbon Experience uh, because it, it is, it's, a, it's a fully functioning distillery. Whether it's a thousand barrels or one barrel, the knowledge and experience still has to be there. I mean, it's still the same it, concepts, the same principles. It's a great, I, I send so many people yeah. right down the street from where I am at Art Eatables to Eva Williams. Well, it you know, um, I think it'll be, gosh, it'll be four years, I guess, this November mm -hmm. when it opened. And so it's 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 been it's the anchor, right? For everything that that is going on, on on Whiskey Row and you know, with Brown Foreman and Michters and Angels Envy and I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, Main Street Louisville, if it's not already fantastic, is gonna be that much better. And to have, you know, our and I think our facility has been, you know, has been fantastic with one, I think people realizing, holy cow, you know, th this is really interesting and neat and people will come see it. And, you know, um, you know, downtown Louisville is a place that people want to come stay. So it, no question. I mean, you know, the Evan Williams bourbon experience is just a, a phenomenal place. You know, you get a lot of great history on Louisville. Um, but a lot of that too. And I know, you know, we originally had started talking about Charlie, but I think, you know, one of the things that, and that Charlie's been able to do the last four years is, I mean, Charlie has an incredible passion for what we do as well. And it, you know, it comes through. I mean, he loves talking about it just like I do. And, um, you know, good for him, you know, for, uh, to be able to run a distillery and also, you know, still be able to get out and talk about it and educate. And, um, you know, it, I know he loves interacting with people down there. So, you know, he, he definitely has, but he's, he's done it all. I mean, you know, he, he, he definitely has running, he's run a big workhorse like this before. So, um, but yeah, he could he could take a little bit of a breather then, right? There's a lot, I think little, so. little I, bit of less moving parts. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's a breather because it's a lot more hands on there. Um, but I just know, you know, Charlie's very, you know, very good dealing with the public. And, you know, it's one of these things at any time you've got somebody that's going to be speaking on behalf of your company. Good, bad or indifferent. They have to have a little bit of passion to them and. You know, Charlie has that. And then it's, I mean, you know, he's been with the company for 40 plus years. So, I mean, he's worked with, you know, a lot of the beams. I mean, just the stories that he has are you know, just phenomenal. I mean, you can't, you can't duplicate that kind of stuff. 
So uh, I guess one last thing, because I would do myself a disservice, especially for some of our listeners that are down in Texas. You know, uh, one thing that that happened, I think, maybe two years ago when uh, Heaven Hill acquired Deep Eddy. Right. So uh, I know it's funny. I've talked to, I've got some coworkers that live in Austin. They're like, what do you mean? It's it's not all Austin anymore. I'm like, eh, kind of a little <laughs> bit. Yeah, but, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of uh, taking that over. So how often are you going to be in Austin and eating good barbecue and stuff like that? <laughs> well, you know, so, yeah, I mean, we— um, uh, we acquired Deep Eddy. I guess, yeah, it's probably been close to two years ago. Um, it, and, and it's, it, I mean, it, the interesting thing about Deep Eddy, and, and I mean, it, it's all going to be done there. I mean, it's, it's it's remaining there. Everything they've done, I think that brand started in 2012. Um, you know, one of the things that we noticed when, you know, I was part of the due diligence team uh, when we were acquiring Deep Eddy and went down and uh, a couple of us and looked at the operation, and we knew immediately that, you know, if this brand is forecasting out the way we think it is, we have to move to a different facility. You know, the one they had um, just wasn't, is not big enough to, you know, reach the growth that we think this brand is going to reach. So we're currently moving the main operation to a different part of Austin, but it, but keeping their current operation, which is a phenomenal visitor's experience if you've never been there. Uh, it's just in a great part of Texas um, as you're heading outside of Austin. And so that'll remain. And, and then we'll do a little bit of production there. But then, you know, the, the bulk of the production is going to move to another site just outside of Austin. Uh, I've, I've already been down, even even before the promotion, I think I've been down three or four times. Uh, we've got a, a, a great plant manager in place there. I mean, they've got their own team. I mean, you know, they've got John Scarborough as the president. I mean, you know, it's I, I'm I'm literally more of a, We've been doing operations for 81 years. We're here to help you. That's my role. Um, we can't, it's very difficult to go teach them what they know because they, I mean, they've built a very successful brand. So it's basically just letting them know that, hey, we're, we're a phenomenal resource for you all. Um, and, we, you know, we'll, we're going to help you guys grow the brand and, and hopefully hit some of these, um, you know, these forecast numbers and, so I don't know. I mean, you know, probably two or three times a year if they need me down there more than that. Uh, I'm heading down next week. But more than anything, it's just being an ear and then, you know, helping them out any way I can. Well, awesome. Danny, I want to say thank you again for coming on the show today. And uh, again, tell us your history and, you know, some, some good stories about working in chemical plants and stuff like that. I don't think we, I think that's a first for us. Absolutely. I don't think I've talked about that. <laughs> yeah, we won't get into too much of that. There are more stories. <laughs> may or may not have had to strip my clothes off in the middle of the lab. All right, give us give us one more before we close off here. Then oh, this was this was terrible. So um, I was doing a. A lot of times you got to do like a metals digestion to you know just to figure. I mean, it's just part of breaking the samples down and. Um, was using hydrofluoric acid. And if you know anything about hydrofluoric acid, it's pretty nasty. I don't, I'm just going to take your word for it. <laughs> well, it's one of those. I mean, if it gets on you. That's I mean, what they it, used in the Sopranos, right? Yeah, they, I mean, it's going for the somebody. Bump. I mean, it's, it's in, um, <laughs> and I, I just, I had knocked a sample over that had some hydrofluoric acid in it. And it went on my, it went right on my pants. And I knew immediately that I'd, I've got to get out of these pants. <laughs> so if you work in a lab, you know that labs in most uh, processing facilities will have safety showers that are mm -hmm. usually located. They got to be located in an area that you can get to. So this one was pretty much um, right. Not, I wasn't in the middle of the lab, but it might as well have been. So it probably took me about 10 seconds to get out of my clothes and get under that shower. Not completely out of my clothes. I mean, yeah. I, mainly the areas <laughs> that had... Um, the acid on it, but uh, and that might have been when I decided it's. I need to start looking. <laughs> Time to I hang up my hat here. I can't do this anymore. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that was uh, that was a long that's, night. That's Let's a, put it. I was about to say, yeah, it, that was a long deep, night. deep thinking, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Danny, again, thank you so much for coming on. I mean, this is this is just fantastic. Uh, just because you know we, you have a you have a good amount of history just that goes into the industry, the experience, uh, as well as the phenomenal things that are actually happening here at Heaven Hill as well. So, well, I just appreciate the time, guys. I mean, um, you know, we enjoy this kind of stuff and come back, come back after expansion. Yeah. You, well, you do good at the marketing side, right? That's, that's why they yeah. hired you to do this, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. And you can tell there's a passion behind there. And so Lyndon, thank you again too, for coming Absolutely. on and, you know, throwing in a few good questions as well. 
My pleasure. Anytime. All right. So uh, if you like what you hear, make sure you tell a friend, you know, if po- podcasts are a great way to kill the time. We were just telling Denny when he's driving back and forth between Louisville and Bardstown and, you know, on those trips to Austin, you know, check us out, tell a friend, anybody that is listening or, you know, drinking bourbon wants to learn more, tell them about bourbon pursuit and uh, all the great information that you have here. Write us a review on iTunes because those iTunes reviews go pretty far as well. Follow us on all those great social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And uh, if anybody out there want to talk about, uh, you know, getting this podcast in front of seven to 10,000 bourbon aficionados and uh, whiskey geeks. You know, we have sponsorships and advertisements available. Go to bourbonpursuit.com. Look for the partnerships tab at the top and you can send us an email and download our media kit. Learn more Uh, with that again, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you all next week. Mm